The Voting Rights Act and its impact on election integrity laws. How do the Fed and states work all this out? Our friend, Professor Rick Hazen from the University of California Irvine School of Law returns. I'm Lawrence Colletti, and this is Legal Talk Today. Welcome back, listeners. Hope you're having a great day out there, wherever you might be. We've got a lot to get to today, but first, I need to thank our sponsor, Noda. Noda is powered by MT Bank because you went to law school to be a lawyer, not an accountant. Take advantage of Noda, a no cost IELTA management tool to help solo and small law firms track client funds down to the penny. Visit trustnota.com forward slash legal to learn more. And that's Noda spelled N O T A. And remember, Terms and conditions may apply. All right, say hello to our friend and return guest, Professor Rick Hazard from the University of California, Irvine School of Law. He's the Chancellor's Professor of Law and Political Science, and he's also the co-director of the Fair Elections and Free Speech Center. Welcome back, Professor. Great to be back with you. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think the last time we had you on was an episode that went live on January 8th. It was uh, following all of the electoral count stuff that was going on in Washington, D.C. It was the Counting the Votes episode. I'll put the link to it in the show notes. But it was great to have you on. You provide a lot of light in a time that was tough. Obviously, that was following the January 6th events in Washington, D.C. But we got to talk about how the electoral votes are counted. So I think it provided a lot of really valuable information to our listeners. But uh, thank you for coming on. I wanted to uh, talk about the voting Rights Act. I've been seeing it come up a lot in the news as of late, uh, in particular with Arizona's new law that was challenged. Uh, that was HB 2023. And of course, that just came back with the Supreme Court case, which we'll touch on in our interview today. And the other one is Georgia Senate Bill 202, which is under challenge from the United States Attorney General Merrick Garland has something to say about that. So we can uh, maybe bring that up too as we go. But Professor, I think that probably the most obvious place to start here, you know, the Voting Rights Act, you know, just in basic terms, Terms, you know, what is it designed to do specifically? Sure. So in 1965, after years of struggle, Congress passed the Voting Rights Act, and it was meant to fulfill the promise of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, the Reconstruction Amendments. 13th Amendment abolished slavery. The 14th Amendment, among other things, requires equal protection of the laws. And the 15th Amendment bars race discrimination and voting. And despite the passage of these amendments, because of some history we don't have time to get into now, there was widespread discrimination against African-Americans and other voters, especially in the South of the United States, but not only in the South. And the Voting Rights Act was meant to put the federal government on offense and to actually ensure that people can vote. And so some of the early things that it did was that it sent registrars down to Southern states to register voters. And it allowed for federal observers to watch to make sure that voters were able to vote and were not intimidated. But it also included a provision uh, that came to be known as preclearance or came to be known as Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, uh, because that's where it appeared in the act. And it basically said that jurisdictions with a history of racial discrimination in voting could not make any changes in their laws such as moving a polling place or passing a new redistricting plan without demonstrating to either the attorney general of the United States or to a three-judge court in Washington, D.C., that the change wouldn't make protected minority voters worse off. This is uh, sometimes referred to as the non-retrogression principle. And the idea is to stop states from making uh, the position of voters worse. 
And the reason this part of the law was necessary is before the Voting Rights Act, states would go back to their old ways. They'd, they'd be sued by the federal government for some voting rights violations. And then as soon as the suit was over, they'd make a slight change to their law and they'd start the discrimination all over again. So a key part of the act as it started out was this preclearance provision in section five. Section two of the act didn't come up until 1982 as a really significant part of the act. In 1965, all that section two pretty much did uh, the Supreme Court said was codify the 15th Amendment, no race discrimination in voting. But after uh, 1982, when Congress amended the Voting Rights Act, it provided in this new section two that it's a violation of the Voting Rights Act when minority voters have less opportunity than others to participate in the political process and to elect representatives of their choice. Unlike section five, which applied only to those jurisdictions with a history of race discrimination and voting, section two was meant to apply nationwide. All right. I want to get into a little bit more of section two, but I want to talk about section five's historical use. So as I was doing my research, professor, I discovered that it seemed like section five was designed to sunset at some point because there was this talk about continuing to renew it. And so I think the last renewal was in 2006. It was renewed for 25 years. But as I understand in a recent case, this was the case about Arizona's law. It is now on pause. So can you just tell us about that renewal, how that came to be, and then tell us about how it got sunsetted just a little bit briefly with the Arizona case? So the Supreme Court in a case called South Carolina versus Katzenbach uh, first upheld the authority of Congress to impose preclearance, to impose this requirement that jurisdictions with history of race discrimination and voting get federal approval before making changes in their voting laws. And one of the things the court pointed to was that it was geographically targeted at those jurisdictions that were the most problematic, and it was temporarily limited. Initially, the Voting Rights Act was limited to a five-year term because it was seen that this was a, a major imposition on states that was necessary because of their race discrimination, but otherwise not normal procedure. So it was renewed in 1970 for another five years. It was renewed for seven years in 1975 until 1982. In 1982, it was renewed for 25 years. And along the way, more jurisdictions were added that had been found to engage in intentional race discrimination voting. And then in 2006, as you mentioned, the act was renewed again for another 25 years. And by that time, there were a number of scholars and uh, lawyers who were suggesting that because Congress hadn't changed the formula for which states are covered, and because it was being extended for such a long period of time, the Supreme Court might find the law to be unconstitutional. In 2009, in a case called Northwest Austin Municipal Utility District Number 1 uh, versus Holder, the Supreme Court strongly suggested that Congress needed to fix the coverage formula or the act was going to be struck down as unconstitutional. And then the 2013 case of Shelby County versus Holder, a very famous case from recent years, the Supreme Court on a five to four vote held that indeed, while the Voting Rights Act preclearance provision in Section 5 was constitutional in the past, the coverage formula was so old and not tied to current conditions in voting that the provision was no longer constitutional. Now, one justice, Justice Thomas, said preclearance could never be constitutional. But the other eight justices left the issue open. And uh, just this past month, Congress started up again on coming up with a new coverage formula that would apply to new states to reimpose preclearance on certain jurisdictions that 
continue to show a problem with race discrimination and voting. I wonder if you could connect the dots for me a little bit. Now, I don't claim to be an elections law expert by any stretch of the imagination, but you, you were alluding there that there's some back and forth on whether or not this particular provision is constitutional. But my understanding is that the Constitution empowers the states to update their election laws. And so I guess I'm starting from that as the most basic point. You know, how is the Voting Rights Act itself constitutional when it seems to infringe upon the state's ability to do that? That's a great question. So Congress has a few sources of authority for passing laws regulating voting. The broadest authority it has is contained in Article I, Section 4 of the Constitution, the so-called Elections Clause. So that part of the Constitution says that for congressional elections, states get to set the rules for elections, but subject to congressional override. So Congress can come in and throw out any state law. So tomorrow, if Congress wanted to say, we're going to use redistricting commissions or Congress is going to have a federal agency run congressional elections. Congress has total power to do that. Now, the Voting Rights Act doesn't just apply to congressional elections. It also applies to state and local elections. So the authority to do that doesn't come from the Elections Clause, which applies only to congressional elections, but comes from Congress's enforcement power. So at the end of the 14th Amendment, which, as I mentioned, provides equal protection of the laws, among other things, is an enforcement provision that says that Congress has the power to enforce this amendment by appropriate legislation. That same language appears at the end of the 15th Amendment, barring race discrimination in voting. The 19th Amendment, right, which bars gender discrimination in voting, right? And so if you look at the different amendments of the Constitution related to voting, they each contain an enforcement provision, and Congress has hung its hat on that enforcement provision as the way in which it can set the rules for voting. Uh, But you're right that there's a delicate balance and the liberals and conservatives on the Supreme Court divided in the Shelby County case in 2013 over whether Congress crossed that line by continuing to require preclearance in these jurisdictions, even though the, the data on which Congress had relied in setting which states were subject to preclearance was very old data going back to the 1960s and 70s. All right. So the the Section 2 and Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act have been in the news quite a bit lately. And as you're going to kind of explain to us, it seems like the Section 5 part of it is uh, on pause for right now. But I want to get back to Section 2 just a little bit, the so-called Gingles factors. And of course, this came out of the Thornburg versus Gingles case of 1986, but essentially gave the court a list of factors to consider when it was trying to determine whether or not a particular election law was violating the Voting Rights Act. So can you give us a quick walkthrough of the, and I know there's a lot of them, but maybe the most iconic ones that kind of help paint the issue for our listeners? Sure. So uh, as I said earlier, in 1982, Congress amends the Voting Rights Act to provide in Section 2 this new protection for minority voters, says that minority voters can't have less opportunity than others to participate in the political process and to elect representatives of their choice. And the court has construed this language many times in the context of redistricting. And the first time it did so was in the 1986 case, Thornburg versus Jingles, which you just mentioned. In that case, imagine that a jurisdiction draws district lines or or even uh, fails to draw district lines uh, and just holds at-large elections where every voter gets to vote for every office. And it turns out that the white majority is always able to defeat the, say, African-American or Latino minority in electing candidates of their choice. 
So if you have, say, a jurisdiction, let's say, take a, uh, a jurisdiction, uh, New Orleans was a good example in one of the early cases. Say you're electing five members of the city council, and let's say that most of the whites prefer one candidate and they make up 60% of the voting population, and African-Americans uh, prefer a different candidate, they make up 40% of the population. If everybody votes for every candidate, then you have an all-white city council. And what the Supreme Court said in Jingles was that when you have this racially polarized voting, that is when whites prefer one set of candidates, minority voters prefer another, and the minority group is large enough and votes consistently enough together and, and they're compact enough geographically that you could actually draw a district where they could elect a candidate of their choice, then under certain circumstances, I'm simplifying a little bit, the Voting Rights Act Section 2 requires that districts be drawn to uh, give minority voters the chance to elect representatives of their choice. And so Section 2, as applied to redistricting, has had a dramatic effect on minority representation in Congress, leading to many more African-American, Latino, and Asian-American, and Native American preferred candidates being elected to office, state office, local office, in some cases, uh, to Congress. And so in the context of redistricting, no question, Section 2 has had a dramatic effect. And as we're now entering into the new round of redistricting following the release of census data over the last few weeks, one of the things that jurisdictions have to consider is how can they ensure that they are complying with these requirements for Section 2 as applied to redistricting. What the Supreme Court had not discussed until this past June is how Section 2 applies not in the context of redistricting, but in the context of laws that make it harder to register and to vote. That's the Brnovich case that the Supreme Court decided in early July of this uh, year. Now, what is the significance of that case, the Brnovich case here? Now, you were mentioning that the uh, Section 5 portion of the Voting Rights Act was de-emphasized, and this had to do with the majority versus dissent. So could you build that out just a little bit? Why is now Section 5 de-emphasized? So Section 5 is on hold. No longer do jurisdictions like uh, Arizona, which used to be subject to Section 5, have to go in and get approval for their laws from the federal government before they can implement them. So instead of uh, trying to fight a discriminatory law by putting it on hold initially, if minority voters believe that a law is discriminatory, they now have to file suit under Section 2. And so in Arizona, there were two provisions of Arizona law one that barred the collection of ballots, mail-in ballots by strangers, sometimes pejoratively referred to as ballot harvesting. Uh, another provision that said, if a voter casts a vote in the wrong precinct, like say they're, they're voting in the wrong place, whether that's their fault or the fault of election officials, their ballots couldn't count for any race, even if they're voting for president, for which they're you know, completely entitled to vote. And the claim was that these laws violated section two of the Voting Rights Act. As I said, the Supreme Court in Brnovich until uh, it was the first time that the court explained how Section 2 applies in the context of what are not redistricting cases, but so-called vote denial cases. And the Supreme Court's liberals and conservatives split again, this time six to three, because there are now six conservatives on the court and three liberals. The six conservatives endorsed a reading of Section 5 that will make it very difficult for minority voters to win their Section 2 claims. And the liberals endorsed a much more relaxed test that would have found that these provisions 
did in fact violate section two. Now, the court spoke about both a claim of uh, a discriminatory effect of these laws and also about discriminatory intent, but the dissenters didn't address the intent point. And the reason this is important, you mentioned at the top that the United States Department of Justice has sued Georgia over its new voting law. The Department of Justice is relying on a theory of discriminatory intent in a section two case. And so we may well get the Supreme Court to weigh in more on what that means in this Georgia case or in another future case. Well, I guess uh, it should not surprise us that if there's going to be a lawsuit from politicians, it's going to be about the very voting laws that put them into office. But, uh, you know, regardless of where you stand, uh, you know, on on changes to do some of these election laws, you know, Professor, you know, there does seem to be uh, an increased burden here. Uh, it seems like there's more attention being put on the changes to these laws. So I guess you know, because you know so much about this, if you were concerned about election security measures, as a lot of the states around the country are, um, you know, the putting forth these provisions to try to tighten up areas where they think there might be instances of fraud. They're just trying to make it more secure in general so that the people that are entitled to vote, at least from their perspective, the people that are entitled to vote get an opportunity to vote, no less, no more, from their perspective. If you were concerned and they hired you to come up with the perfect law, how would you do it? How would you structure it to try to, I guess, reduce the amount of, uh, I guess, litigation or court challenge investment you have to make after you pass the law when, uh, say, someone like Merrick Garland decides, you know what, we're going to take a review on that particular update. Sure. And it's very difficult to avoid election litigation these days, given that our our elections are so close and there's a lot of disagreement about how the Constitution applies and how federal protections apply. Uh, But I would say that if you're going to pass a law that you're claiming is going to prevent fraud or promote voter confidence, you should actually have some evidence to back it up. You should have to show that the law would actually work in that way. The concern is that sometimes states say that they're passing a law in order to prevent fraud, but what they're really trying to do is to shape the electorate and to give the, themselves a partisan advantage. You know, so this is you know kind of um, the question of when is fraud a legitimate concern and when is it a pretext for discriminatory action. Uh, that's one of the key issues on which the majority and dissent in the Brnovich case disagreed. And I'm afraid that it's hard to avoid a kind of an ideological view about this question, about whether or not you think election integrity uh, and preventing fraud is a greater problem in this country than voter suppression. On these questions, Democrats and Republicans tend to divide pretty neatly into two camps. And so trying to figure out how to bridge that and to avoid litigation is is a really tough thing in this very partisan environment. Yeah, you know, and I, I absorbed that, uh, you know, from my reading about the Brnovich case was that you also don't want to have to wait until an actual fraud occurs, but you also want to do that delicate balance so that, you know, parts of your population are not being disparately impacted by it. But Professor, thank you so much for joining us today. I really enjoyed talking with you again. It's been a pleasure. And thank you listeners for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. We value the time you invest with us. And also one more thank you to our sponsor, Noda. You can find the trustnota.com forward slash legal. And that's Noda spelled N-O-T-A. And last but never least, thank you to our team, producer Molly McDonough and our LT and audio crew for all their hard work. This has been Legal Talk Today. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Have a great day, everybody. 